Wonderful people of the world and welcome to season 3 of Go Out and Talk to Strangers. This is Adi. I'm a nomadic architect and the founder of the new movement. Architectural design studio that designs one-of-a-kind, innovative and creative projects worldwide. Using the built environment as a tool to help people thrive. During my world travels, I am constantly meeting incredible people. People who are reshaping the way we live work, and connect. The reason I started this show is because I want to highlight the ones who are leading the way. This is the place where I host thought leaders, entrepreneurs, and founders of unique projects to share their stories and insights. I want to invite you to be part of the change. If you're looking for something bigger than yourself, if you also feel that we can do better, that standard is simply not good enough, you're in the right place. I hope you'll enjoy today's episode. And I'm very, very excited to welcome to the show Russell, Russell Garnett. Hello, Russell. Hi, Dee. How are you? Good to see you again. Thank you. It's good to see you too. <laughs> Thanks for joining us today. Shame we can't do it in person. Maybe next time. I'm sure we will someday. Okay, so I'm going to introduce you. So Russell is the Managing Director at Urban Revolutions. He's a former Olympic athlete, and today we're going to talk about his latest development that is going to be amazing. That is called, let me get it right, <laughs> Vu Valley. Yeah? Well done. Yes, it is indeed. Vu Valley. Okay, and also I want to start by reading a quote that I really liked. Uh, it says, Our success is measured by the achievement of others to multiply its effects and encourage our customers to pay it forward. This is absolutely beautiful. Um, where are you calling from today, Russell? I'm in Sydney, Australia. Wow, amazing. Okay, so let's, let's talk about this new project that you're developing. How did it all start? Oh, geez. Um, it sort of started out probably around 2010. And after I sort of finished playing sport, I was helping some of the you know, the younger kids and coaching them and I'd give them, uh, you know, work on some of our building sites uh, and, you know, because they were going off on their own little trips and needed some money. And I actually had, you know, one of the young boys actually come and, you know, sit me down one day and he was about, you know, 14 years of age uh, uh, and he, he basically sat me down and he said, Russell, he goes, I've got no hope of ever leaving home. And I thought, wow, that was a pretty you know, powerful statement for someone of such a young age to actually say. And I thought, you should be out either kicking a football or maybe even before chasing girls and you're actually thinking about not, not actually, you know, leaving home. Um, and I, I was just sort of, I really got taken aback, you know, for someone of that age to sort of lose hope of having a brighter future. And I guess that really shocked me. Um, and then a few weeks later, he actually sat down with a whole group of his friends and me, and actually they all started to, started to talk about the, the same concerns that they had for their future. And so I kind of thought, well, at that point in time, I was building these, you know, luxury residential estates, uh, you know, for very wealthy people. And I thought, maybe my calling is actually to help people that are maybe a little bit less fortunate than I am. 
So, you know, I went out and started researching a whole lot of, um, you know, planning legislation. I'm an environmental planner, um, you know, by tertiary qualification. So thought that I could use my skills both as a builder and as a planner. Went and bought the first block of land, designed a project, submitted it to the council, only to find out that there was so much fierce opposition to what I was trying to do from bureaucrats and local residents. You know, and really the, the sentiment that was coming back to me that I was encouraging drug lords, pedophiles and divorce people. And what? I thought that was a really interesting thing for people to say. So it really became a really, uh, really strange argument. I'm here trying to actually help people and get was starting to get, you know, a lot of pushback. And it really got a little bit of a, a crazy scenario, you know, when you're thinking, wow, you can put drug lords, pedophiles and divorce people in the same sentence. <laughs> uh, you know, it became a fairly silly argument. It is. So, but that's what people have in mind when they think about affordable living, right? Yeah, they think about the worst case. So, okay, so can you des describe what is it that is different about what you do? Well, I think what we did first of all was like come up with some belief systems. And really, we had come to the conclusion that housing as we know it is broken. Mm. You know, it was poor quality, it's expensive, it's environmentally consuming, and the current housing options aren't reflective of any of the demographic shifts, especially for singles, couples, single parents, and the cost of living pressures were just continuing to rise beyond most people's means. And then we started to look at both landlords and banks and realized that that's typically how, you know, particularly rental housing happens here in Australia. And we realized that they really didn't care about customer experience. Um, they didn't care about your living costs and they didn't care about your environmental footprint. And then we looked on the politician side of things and we realized that they were making all of their decisions based on, you know, long-term votes and fear and really that change was riskier than status quo. So realizing what the problem was, we then had to sort of start to think about, well, what were the solutions around that? And it's really interesting when you start to then pair back, um, you know, these different stakeholder groups. And when you look at the politicians, first of all, they talk about affordability just to secure votes, but then tend to not do anything about it. They really have no interest in fixing the problem because they believe that they have to actually reduce housing prices to actually improve affordability, where we actually started to believe that that wasn't the case. Mm -hmm. They fear that they were actually going to lose voters if housing prices had to drop to actually create things that were more affordable. Wait, why? So if, if houses pricing will lower, that's a success for them. Am I right? Well, I suppose it is, except for when you look at the current property owners, because pr current property owners don't want their housing prices to go down. And if their housing prices go down, then those people actually won't vote for the politicians. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden we ended up in this, this virtuous cycle where the politicians don't want to do anything. Um, the existing property owners don't want you to do anything. Um, and then your investors actually want to have attractive returns and they're used to ticking boxes. So all of a sudden, at the customer who we thought that we were trying to you know, to embrace, the ones who actually want to live somewhere that's clean, safe, connected, inspired, want to live somewhere close to family, but they want their independence. They still want to be close to work. They want to be close to their friends. They want to be close to the action, but they want to achieve all of this at a price that they can afford. And that becomes the biggest challenge. 
So how do you actually accommodate all of these interest groups, which is where we really started to look at how do we actually fix the problem? Okay. Okay. This is incredible. And then what was the next step that you took? Well, uh, I guess we started out by asking ourselves, what if we could actually fix the housing system in a way that the politicians don't lose the votes, you know, so that existing property values continue to rise, that we can empower the hopes and dreams of customers, be socially responsible, environmentally conscious, and significantly improve cost of living all at the same time. And so that's actually how we actually came up with Vivali. So um, it, it, it probably, you know, Vivali actually means family. And, and I guess on a more, uh, on, on a deeper level, it actually means that feeling that you get of welcoming as if you are family, welcoming people into your home. And when we started with that as a notion, and I, I'm not sure if you've read the book, The Blue Ocean Strategy, but I have. Uh, you know, offering differentiation at a lower cost, you know, that's where we were coming from. So we just went, right, really the only way when you reflect on that challenge of all of these opposing constraints is how do you make people feel that they have more than they need, you know, whilst ensuring that they, you know, that we can empower more sustainable living. And the only way that we could think of doing that was reducing waste and excess through more sharing. Mm. And really, that's the long and the short of it. Um, <laughs> Wait, I, I want to go back one step. Uh, you said that uh, it means family in what language? So, Vivali is actually a Fijian word. Oh. Um, my father's actually Fijian. And uh, so, I sort of had a little bit of a, uh, you know, affinity to, you know, the Fijian culture as well as, you know, in Australia as well. And, mm -hmm. and, and came across a word that we really felt actually embodied what we were actually trying to do, you know, and Vivali is, uh, is that word. It's beautiful. I love the meaning of it. And I, I love everything that you're saying, but it seems so ambitious, right? It seems like I'm going to fix the the problems of the, the right? That's amazing. <laughs> okay, but, but late. So let's uh, go. It is very interesting to see when someone is doing something different, something that is not even in the building codes. Um, so what happened? Okay, so you designed a project. You have a land and you say, oh, okay, I have this new model of renting ownership sharing um how many residents can live in the project yeah so um our very first project back in 2013 that we developed was really small mm -hmm. you know that was our let's call that our mvp that was mm -hmm. you know 23 um units in in what is otherwise termed co-living you know these days <laughs> um And yes, our solution is, I guess, providing aspirational lifestyle in a cost-effective way, but it's in a, a rental living um, style. But at the same time, people really do aspire to home ownership. So we thought, how can we actually create a, a rental model that actually also still increases that opportunity for people to actually own their home. And we, we believe that we've actually done that in a way that is four times faster than conventional models as well. So I don't believe there's actually any other rental model that is actually encouraging people to move out and own their own home. But that is the, obviously the goal. Amazing. So how do you do that? How do you encourage people to, to own a home? We started looking at sort of both the, the demographics of you know, the type of customers that we would have. And we believe that our governments were doing quite a good job, you know, 
as the safety net for people that probably earned nothing up to about forty-five, fifty thousand um, dollars. But we real and we think that our a lot of housing that's actually already out there probably already serves someone that's probably on about one hundred and twenty thousand dollars or more. But there is this massive gap of people, probably between about forty-five thousand up to about the one hundred and twenty thousand dollar mark, that are the most underserved, particularly in Sydney. But in other states around Australia and, and looking at demographics around the world, it, it seems pretty much the same. Mm-hmm. We use what's called the Housing Affordability Index here uh, in Australia. And it, it's typically suggesting that you shouldn't spend about 30% of your take-home income on rent, rent or your repayments. And I'm guessing around the world, it's probably fairly similar. But if you're on about 45 grand a year, that works out about $265 a week. Um, if you're on about $80,000, that's about $450 a week. So I don't know about where you are at the moment, but you pretty much can't find anything within about an hour and a half of the city of Sydney in that sort of price range. Mm. And so, and when you start to look at all of the other cost of living components that you have, someone on about $80,000 a year who should be spending about $400 to $450 a week on their rent when you look at all of their other living costs, they're actually living off their credit card. And so we, we started to look for ways, well, how can we actually find ways that we can provide a living solution, but how can we actually provide a whole lot of other value add and benefit, which our customers no longer have to pay for? And so we can actually provide them a better lifestyle outcome at a cheaper price which means that they can actually start to save a lot faster. So typically in Australia, it takes about 11 to 14 years to actually save a deposit for a home. We believe we can now do that in about three to four years. What? That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it's a real game changer. It is. Okay, wow. That, that's, that's really incredible. So having that in mind, how does it work for your investors for your own ROI, how could you do something that is so radically different and still make a profitable project? We all know that there are win-win solutions nowadays. It's just we really need more modeling and more open source, I guess, to be able to to scale that. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, doing one project here or there, you can sort of come up with with temporary band-aid type solutions, but we have to come up with a solution that if we're gonna do this and we're going to do it at scale, you've got to make sure that you can bring your investment partners along the way. And and obviously, when you're doing something different, they want to be even more conservative. So you've actually got to put even more of a buffer in there. Um, but really, you have to think of everything right back from the start. And the way that we look at things is how do you find win-wins for everyone across the spectrum? So when you're starting at a government level, you can't actually go and talk to a government bureaucrat and say, I need a handout. Our solution going to uh, to the politicians was actually saying, we can deliver this, we can deliver it at scale, and it's going to be at zero cost to government. And all of a sudden, their eyes open. They say, okay, well, what can we do to help? Wow. You then, and, you know, so then we start to look at things like planning legislation, taxation legislation, and trying to level the playing field there. We then have to find land. And how do you go and find and secure land when you actually don't even have planning legislation that's going to allow you to do what you can do? So you've got to go off and find you know, large 
master planned um, you know, land developers, whether basically building suburbs or cities and get them aligned. And the way that we did that was that um, these land developers have to have a certain percentage of affordable housing within their estates. And so we said, well, what if our housing solution could provide that affordable housing in one-tenth of the land space? So now all of a sudden, we've actually found the win for the developer. So now we can bring the developer and the government together. You know, uh, so what we've just started to do is, you know, in all of these different stakeholder groups, it's finding out what what is their problem and making sure that you can create that solution. So that's actually taken us, you know, almost 10 years to actually put all of the pieces of the puzzle together. So we've been playing a really long game there. Wow, that's incredible. You know, I feel like when people want to do something different, but then they they go to legislation and the government and building codes. This is where most people fold, right? They say, okay, this is the system. The system is broken. I'm going to move to Costa Rica, which is great, but has less. I love that I designed a, um, a project in Guatemala a few years ago. And the only code we had to <laughs> respect was don't block the neighbor's view, which I love. I wish that was the only one. <laughs> right? It just, you know, don't upset your neighbors. Yeah. <laughs> That's beautiful. Uh, obviously, don't do something that is, uh, yeah, going to be ugly and destroy nature. But as long as you're respectful of the environment and your neighbors, you can do whatever you want. And when we look closer to city centers and university and cultural centers, then that's where things get more limited. And I, I would be very, very interested to know how did you manage to find the gray zones within the black and white that we're all so familiar with? Well, I guess I have this, um, it's a well-known saying, but it, it, it's easier to ask for forgiveness than ask for permission. <laughs> and so I guess you just have, you have to have this mindset, I guess, of you've got to be very resilient, but at the same time, you probably have to have an element of denial as well. <laughs> Um, and it's just, you just got to keep pushing down barriers. You know, I've got, we've got this, um, uh, planning and design policy called the apartment design guideline. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, what a lot of our bureaucrats have been saying to me is, oh, you know, this has to apply because you're a form of apartment. And I keep saying to them, guys, I'm trying to build a rocket ship and you're giving me specifications to build a steam train. Mm Yeah. It's just not the same thing. And then you have to, you know, it, it's an education process. And I'm not saying that I've got all of the answers. I think that we've come up with a really good package. I'm sure that we'll continue to iterate and approve, uh, you know, and improve it. And we're continuing to do that with uh, both, you know, at all levels of government, uh, you know, but that's, I guess, at the end of the day, just part of the journey and just keep pushing through those barriers. Mm-hmm. So, wait, I want to get it straight. So, you... In this guidelines, usually, uh, let's say you have to have an X size of a kitchen, of what's the minimum size of a living room, of a room, that kind of things. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If I was to give one example where I think it's a real waste, every single apartment has to have a minimum size private uh, balcony. Mm-hmm. And... In that code, it says that that balcony needs to be a minimum of four square meters. Now, our view is a four square meter balcony doesn't serve that person in the apartment and it doesn't serve the greater good. And what tends to happen is people go and hang their clothes out on the balcony and so, or the developer goes and puts an air conditioning unit on it. 
So oh, either way, no. the space gets used for the very reasons that it shouldn't be used and the aesthetic on, on the building looks quite unattractive. Mm -hmm. Well, our view is, well, if I'm going to go and build 200 of our types of units, rather than have 800 square metres of everyone having private balconies, instead we'll provide six or 700 square metres of communal space. So now what we've been able to do is actually create spaces that are usable for more people. Our buildings are more cost effective to build and the spaces are more usable. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we've come up with about six or eight different sort of strategies, but that gives you just one example of what we're trying to repurpose space so that we can share and benefit from that. And can you share, I know you had many challenges you had to overcome, but do you have something specific in mind that, let's say, you didn't anticipate a few years back? Um, I never really anticipated the local sentiment and, um, you know, and this is local resident, local residents and, and, you know, you're always going to have objection to, to proposals, but where, where we didn't probably expect it so much is that the local residents might have objected without actually understanding what we were doing. You would then have the local government who, if they didn't want to do what we were doing, um, they would actually use the residents to their benefit. And the residents, the existing residents actually didn't realize that council was actually using them as a pawn. And so never really understood the political dynamic early on. And I guess very early on, we were probably a little bit naive to think that everyone would just love our ideas without us even explaining what it was. So we've probably had to really do an education program. And I mean, at the end of the day, it tends to be the parents of our customers who are the ones that are objecting. And what we actually tried to do was actually help them realize that the alternative is that when your child actually chooses to leave home, they're probably going to have to live about one and a half hours to two hours away from where the family unit is. So without us at the moment, there is a lot of, I guess we call it family dislocation. But we started to say to them, well, guys, what if we could actually provide you a solution where your children actually get that level of independence? They're now young adults. They want their independence, but they still want to be close enough to home that they can be near that family unit when they need them. And that you're going to be certain that they're going to be living somewhere that is sort of safe, secure, um, and have a good quality of people, you know, in, in with them as well. And at the end of the day, that's all parents want. And when you start to help them actually understand that that is actually going to be the outcome, all of a sudden you actually have the parents that are actually on our side. Mm -hmm. So where exactly did you explain that? Is that like a conference uh, or exactly? How did this happen? So a lot of different areas. Unfortunately, in the early days, it had to be going through the court systems. Mm. Um, and, okay. and, and, you know, and, you know, public forums, first of all. And so there's a lot of that negative sentiment early on. And then it's, it's just slowly chipping away, helping them understand um, helping local government actually understand because it, 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 even they actually don't don't fully understand what we're doing, um, and, and then it's it's public relations from there. You know, helping mm -hmm. people understand through social media, through um, 
uh, through newspaper articles and things like that. So rather than people finding out that this new thing is coming, it's actually informing them about the problems and the, and potential solutions first, and then they find out that a solution is coming. Where in the early days, we would just ram the solution straight down their throat and actually say, <laughs> well, we're coming whether you like it or not. There you go. Enjoy. So, so I guess yeah. that's probably one of our biggest learnings. So if you were to give an advice to someone who's looking to start a project that is not in any standard communication and have a clear understanding of what problem are you going to solve, that would be one of the first advice, if I understand correctly. Yeah, absolutely. And probably at the scale that we're looking at doing, if you're not going to turn the needle far enough by doing things at scale, mm-hmm. well, government and banks aren't even going to you know, open their doors to you. So, you know, we started with this very small idea um, and then realized very quickly if we're going to open doors, we have to start to look at scale and in multiple locations, multiple interest groups. Um, and so we're actually bringing, um, you, know, uh, you know, like key worker associations on board so that um, at the end of the day, governments actually need someone to blame. I see. And... And so that that they need they need a lot of support. So um you know so we've you've really got to build that layer, um you know all the way through it, um making sure that you've got a solution. The challenges are going to come up in any solution that you're going to try to create, and it's about not being knocked down from the people that actually have that negativity, but instead you actually embrace the negativity. You go away. You work out how do you actually get past that negativity and come back with actually a better solution. And if you're resilient and just keep pushing, uh, then eventually you find um, you know the right solution that everybody is happy with mm-hmm. or more people are happy with. Wow. Yeah. Okay. I think I'm saying a lot of wow in this episode <laughs> because I am really amazed by how you're leading the way here, how you're doing something that is absolutely different. And even though it took you, you said, almost 10 years yeah. You still look at it and say, yeah, this is my purpose and this is how I'm going to show up. Uh, and I just find it incredible and very, very inspiring. Why is it important to scale? I think the problem is just really large. Um, and if you, uh, we want to help thousands of people, you know, um, you know, it, it, I guess our idea actually did start out, you know, just trying to help the few that asked ask for help and then when you start to realize how big the challenge is you go okay well you can really start to make a big impact and and then when we found out that the only way to open the doors that we wanted to open was actually to show greater scale that it almost forced us down that path and and then you know once you're on that journey and pushing through then that's what you do you know we, we had we had some banks that actually said to us russell it's the same amount of work to give you $10 million or $100 million. So go away, you know, and then and then come back <laughs> when you add a zero and then you'd come back and you'd add a zero and they'd say, well, if you want to open the politician's doors, you're going to have to open a zero. And you think you've got to add a zero and you're thinking, oh my God, you know, this started as such a, a small idea, which now all of a sudden has become something really big. But you know, now now it's about believing in ourselves that we can actually deliver that at scale. So I don't think you have to deliver at scale, 
but I, mm-hmm. f- for us and to make the impact that we want to make, uh, that's absolutely where we need to be. Amazing. So, so what's next? What's the where are the new locations? Yeah. So, look, be, we are starting out that? in in Sydney, um, uh, and you know, scaling it here. You know, the the size of the problem that we have. It, you know, we we can house about our model is to house about four and a half thousand people here. You know, over the next few years, there are three point three million people in Sydney that earn ninety one thousand dollars or less. That's eighty six percent of our population, but only less than twenty percent of our housing actually caters to their needs. So you know, I, I I'm not even meeting two percent of the demand for here. We absolutely do have uh, ambitions to scale into other states and into other countries. Um, and, you know, we're already talking to a few people around the world that might like to license our ideas. But we need to get that model right here first, you know, before we will we'll look to, uh, to accelerate. Yeah, absolutely. You always want to test. And I guess that if I'll host you again in the next season of the podcast, you'll have more learnings and more insights to share with us. Absolutely. Do you think it has anything to do with your Olympic experience? Oh, look, I, there's no doubt that I'm competitive. And and you're not afraid of challenges, I can tell. I'm not, not afraid of challenges. Absolutely. And, and when I, you know, and, and I actually don't like to use the word I, and I know that I've spoken in the past about I don't like talking necessarily about me I actually prefer to use the word we um mm-hmm. and so I, I guess even my, my Olympic experience was not about me because I actually chose to do a team sport whilst I was good at athletics um I, I um and I was competing in sort of you know 100 200 meter you know sprint races I actually decided that I wanted to focus more on a team sport. So I actually competed in the Sydney Games um, in the team handball, um, which is known you know, very well over in Europe for your, your audience, but it's lesser known here in Australia. And you know what? I actually chose that sport not because it was easy, but because it was hard. It was probably the first sport that I played where I was hopeless. <laughs> Like I was really bad and I actually got so angry at myself that I had to work harder and harder at it to actually, you know, become better. Um, you know, most other sports I could, you know, I could do really well, you know, pretty quickly. And, and this one was a challenge. And So you're not afraid to fail. You have something in you that is just like, yeah, I'm going to give it a try. Absolutely. My Actually, my grandfather taught me, you know, a, a really uh, good saying. He just said, you know, Russell, you have to just c- continue to fail forward. Um, and, and you know, uh, always, um, you know, th- that's something that I've tried to live by. Um, you know, always wanted to win, but it, 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 um, it's not necessarily, you know, for a personal thing, it's, you know, I believe that, you know, uh, the, the, there is a saying out of the, the jungle book, you know, the strength of the pack is the wolf, but the strength of the wolf is the pack. And and so, you know, we've always had that mindset. And um, and so that's why building teams, you know, um, having a real strategy. Mm-hmm. Actually, you know, I might be digressing just a little bit, but I actually believe that in from my sporting career, I actually underachieved. What do you mean? When I say that to a lot of people, they think, "Are you crazy?" You know, because you know you're Olympian, and and I, my my view was that my dream 
wasn't specific enough. Um, you know, because my dream sort of came about, you know, I first remember the 1984 Olympics watching Carl Lewis and I just thought that was the greatest thing. 100 metres, 200 metres, 4 by one long jump, you know, greatest athlete, you know, uh, of his time. But it wasn't till 1988 where... Um, Duncan Armstrong, his uh, famous Australian swimmer who who won the 200-meter uh, freestyle, you know, against the more favored, you know, US, that was Matt Biondi, Michael Gross from, I think, West Germany. Um, and I watched him. I went to a small primary school, only 140 kids. You know, we sat around a small TV screen. You know, in 1988, I think it was color, but I'm not 100% certain, you know, screaming on, you know, for, for Australia. We, we've got this little um, saying that's, you know, we're the Aussie battlers. We love being the underdog. <laughs> and and when he won that race, I just decided at the time I said, that's going to be me one day. Mm. And so my dream was to be an Olympian. But I don't think I was specific enough in that situation because I actually think that if I did everything I needed to be an Olympian, but I didn't. I I was not at my best. Um, I you know I could have been fitter. I could have been stronger. I could have been more mentally tough. Um, and uh, it, I did the work, but I know that I could have done more. And so that's why I say that I you know I think that I could have uh, achieved more. And also, you just confessed that you chose the areas that are more challenging for you instead of going with something that is the easiest. I am not going to start playing piano now that I know a little bit of guitar. <laughs> might be better for me to stick with guitar and, and see how that goes. That's so I'm, I want to ask you a follow-up question on that. So when you fail, you said fail forward, right? Fail in a way that, I guess, teaches you something. Can you share something that you recently learned from failing? Or if you have a specific, I don't know, a framework, a process that you do with yourself when you fail to get the best out of it, what would that look like? I think the first thing is acknowledging it. You know, um, I make mistakes every single day, but the first thing to do is own up to them uh, and then say to yourself, okay, well, how can I be better next time? Um, you know, if I go back to my sporting analogy, you know, a lot of the general public don't see the 95%, you know, which is the pain, the struggle, the loss. You know, the public gets to see the last 5%. And I guess that's why we love to watch sport because it's the extremes of triumph and despair. Um, mm. at, at, but it's all that hard work of, of getting there. And often in that pursuit of ec excellence, we forget to actually have the fun. And even though you're failing along the way, I guess you have to enjoy that journey and you have to push through that bad stuff so that you can actually get to the good stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, and I guess that's probably, you know, one thing that I've really learned from that, you know, my sporting career is actually to bring that forward into, into business life as well. So as you're failing, it just means that every failure, you're actually just building that muscle and that muscle, you're actually getting stronger And then next time you're either going to do it better or, you know, you're always striving to be, be your best. Um, ne I never give myself a 10 out of 10. Actually, I never give anyone a 10 out of 10 because I always say <laughs> that there is always that room for improvement. Um, yeah, so that's that's just me. Okay, I, I like that a lot. It feels like a, a mindset 
right? There is this saying that uh, life is a roller coaster. We're always going to be ups and downs. How you handle the curves, that's what matters. So how are you kind to yourself? Instead of just pulling back, run the marathon instead of the sprint, because this is where you can really see things changing. Yeah, and I think you need to also take it away from yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, because it, because if you make every negative experience personal, then you you probably don't get as far as you want to go. Everything for me, if we get if we get knocked down, my motivation is always what is in the best interest of my future customer, mm-hmm. and and that is the thing that's going to keep motivating me forward. It doesn't matter what someone's going to say about what we're doing or about me personally, it actually doesn't matter because those people probably don't understand, you know, what we're trying to achieve for others. I can't tell you how many banks that we've been to who actually said in the early days, um, we love your idea, but we don't want to go first. Come back to us. <laughs> we'll be second. And I just say, sorry, guys, you won't get a second chance. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Be on board from the start. That's right. Okay, I have like a gazillion questions for you, but I think we're almost running out of time. Go for it. Hit me. <laughs> oh, don't worry about okay, time. Okay, five, five more minutes. Five more minutes. <laughs> it's all good. Um, okay, so if you had... Wait, yeah. let, me, let me look. Let me choose my best question. Ooh. Well, we never got to the microvillage concept, right? So I want, I want to ask you a little bit, if you can share a little bit about the microvillage concept and then we'll try and and this beautiful interview and definitely have you for another session in the next season. Sure. So I mentioned that it was, I guess what we're trying to do are create places where we can provide more value to someone that they're otherwise paying somewhere else. Mm -hmm. So, and the best way to do that is through sharing. Uh, So we, we have a number of different, I guess, offerings. So we start with what we call build to rent, which is more colloquially known, say, in the UK. So it is a rental model. We add in some co-living. We also have like a hybrid hotel where you can actually rent by the room or you can rent by the bed. But we also think that there is a lot of interest, particularly in not just co-working, but it's also in actually the incubator creating angel investing, a real platform for people um, to actually, you know, create startups. And often people actually don't do that because they actually don't know where to start. So it also starts with education. So we have that real live, work, play and learn. And the learning is actually a really fundamental part for us so that we can actually elevate everyone um, so that they've got that better opportunity, uh, you know, to actually have a startup uh, that they can live somewhere uh, that is probably better than they can otherwise afford on their own or they can stay there as well. Um, And that's really at a high level what we're doing. There's a whole lot of detail, but we'd probably take about three hours just trying to explain all of the things that we're trying to do. (laughs) I know, I know. Okay, but um, I'll be sure to share your links in the show notes and what's the best way to connect with you and all of that. Wow, I really feel that you're doing something that is a game changer, you know, not only in a way that allow people to save or deposit for a home, but also 
to understand what's possible in the world. Well, no one thinks of, you know, I'm, I come from Israel, startup nation. The reason that we have so many startups is because you see your neighbor does that, right? You see your friend from school, you know, doing this, I don't know, $10 million exit, and that's a small one, right? And you're just like, oh, well, if they can do it, I can do it. That's the mentality because it seems something that one can do, you know, just like, well, why not, why not me? And there's also all those different ecosystems that support each other, like different hubs and uh, accelerators that help people develop ideas with mentors. And it just seems so possible. And I think that by doing that, by adding that learning component, you're actually doing more than supporting, you know, a co-working space where you have great Wi-Fi and a nice Skype booth. Uh, well, today should be called a Zoom booth, <laughs> but it, it actually showing people, look, this is also what's possible in the world. Let me help you see how you can get there. Absolutely. And that's really the long and the short of it at the end of the day. It's no longer good enough for us developers to build bricks and mortar and be a good developer or even a good operator. And instead, what we've got to do is kind of elevate our thoughts, particularly, you know, if I can do that of a Vivali building, you look at that beyond bricks and mortar and instead, you know, envision places that we can create as a platform, you know, that helps to empower people to achieve their hopes and dreams. And I guess if we're doing that through, you know, solving problems, you know, it benefits everyone along the way that we touch. I'm going to cry. No, I am. I'm very touched. Uh, this is incredible. And I do hope to, to come visit in person uh, very soon. Uh, okay. Well, Russell, thanks again for making time and being my guest on this show i think this is really incredible what you're doing and uh, before we uh, end this episode there is one question that i ask all my guests it's called the wild napkin are you ready oh okay the wild napkin go for it yeah okay so you go into a bar let's say that you drink and you have a couple of drinks yeah. and your mind is really free and all of a sudden you have the craziest idea but all you have is a napkin so you write it down and the next day you, you'll find it in your pocket. What does it say? Wow. That's a good one. Oh, thank you. I, rather than having a solution, I, 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 I have things that are priorities. And, and so my priorities are always, how can I improve someone else's life? And if I was to then use that in an analogy of where Vivali could potentially be, say, in 10 years' time, if I was to write that on a napkin, I believe it's achievable. Mm -hmm. Rather than if we were to sit here in 10 years' time and say, where has Vivali gone? We'd be going from housing that is affordable to housing that is free. Wow. Housing that is free. Yeah. Okay. And I think that we can achieve that. Okay, I'm going to put it on my uh, calendar. <laughs> That's beautiful. Okay, you think you can achieve that? Uh, I think we can. Now you have to push me to do it faster. Okay. I, I'm going to hold you accountable. If you get to know me, you'll realize that there's actually now two sides of the napkin. So I've gone housing that's free on one side of the napkin. I thought I better not waste the other side of the page. And I start to think, 
why do we need to work for 50 years of our lives? <laughs> why can't we help people do it for 10? So there you go. There's my two challenges. Okay, so I'm going to leave it like this. I'm going to leave it open and I want people to reflect on that. And if you have any ideas or comments, please write us. Yeah, that'd be awesome. And um, I want to thank you again for sharing your beautiful, beautiful journey with us. And we're going to uh, keep following. Uh, I'm going to share the links to your website and LinkedIn profile so anyone can connect with you. And thanks for everyone who chose to be with us today. And until the next time, go out and talk to strangers. Thanks, Adi. Hi again. I hope you liked today's episode. If you learned something new, make sure to pay it forward and share it with someone in your network that might like it as well. Follow the show and rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. As you know, I love to hear from you. If you have a thought or a question regarding today's episode, go to the New Movement website. That's www.thenewmvt.com and use the contact form to leave us a comment. Thank you for being part of the change. I'll see you next time.